From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Namdi Show, connecting your neighborhood with the world. Later in the broadcast, Tech Tuesday explores the future of mobile apps. But first, yesterday's deadly incident on a yellow line train raises new questions about safety and accountability on Metro. An apparent electrical malfunction in a tunnel near the L'Enfant Plaza station sent thick smoke into the tunnel and the train, leading to at least one death and sending more than 80 people to the hospital. It also raised tough questions about emergency planning protocols and the safety of our aging metro system. What was your commute like today? If you take Metro to work, did you hesitate before boarding the train this morning? Give us a call, 800-433-8850. WAMU transportation reporter Martin DeCaro joins us to talk about evacuating Metro trains and investigating the incident. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. It's good to be here, Kojo. Sometime after 3 p.m. yesterday, a six-car yellow line train stopped about 800 feet inside of a tunnel at L'Enfant Plaza in response to something they're calling an arcing event further down the line. By the time the passengers evacuated the train, they'd been engulfed in a noxious smoke, which is being blamed for at least one death and scores of people hospitalized. What do we know about what happened and why? The National Transportation Safety Board is now the lead agency here. They issued an initial finding, and you had mentioned the arcing event. It's an arcing insulator. There are about 100,000 insulators on Metro's track system. They contain electricity for the third rail so they don't spread to other areas and cause problems. This arcing event happened. uh, It was involving cables uh, connected to the third rail possibly caused by water in the tunnel, it caused a lot of smoke. These incidents happen, uh, I don't want to say regularly, but they're not uncommon when you have an arcing insulator. In a report last year, I should say in 2013, after that fiasco on the Green Line, Metro released a report saying that they had replaced about 11,000 of these insulators, that they happen about twice a month, usually minor. Uh, And they often do cause smoke and fire incidents. In the first eight months of last year, there were 85 smoke and fire incidents on Metro Rail. That's the most recent data we have available. There were 62 such incidents the first eight months of 2013. So an increase last year of these smoke fire incidents often caused by arcing insulators and that is the preliminary uh, finding of the NTSB about yesterday's okay, result. Okay, so this is something that was happening fairly frequently, which mm. raises the question. Several passengers on the plane, on the train, have said there was a lack of communication about what was happening and what was being done, which led to confusion and panic. If this has been happening as much as it has been happening, what is standard evacuation procedure, and how are metro operators trained to react in emergency situations? So sure, Kojo, we've talked about what we know. Now we're going to get into the area of what we don't know, and that's the response to yesterday's incident. Um, Metro tells passengers not to leave trains unless they're in immediate danger. Yesterday was an uh, uncommon amount of smoke. It was a large amount of smoke. It usually does not happen. So the the, the train conductor did the right thing in stopping the train. But what we don't know is when power to the third rail was cut. Was it cut as a matter of protocol to cut the uh, power source for the smoke? Or was it cut after passengers, quote-unquote, self-evacuated? Because once people are on the track bed, Metro will cut power because it's dangerous to walk on the track bed or the third rail there. That then prevents the train from backing up to the platform. Where, you know, the train conductors, you can hear them on the videos that people were taking on the train yesterday with their smartphones. You can hear the conductor telling people, stay put, we're going to try to get the train back to the platform. That was not able to happen. Because one of the reasons the firefighters didn't go on immediately was because they said they weren't sure where the power to the third rail had been cut. Another aspect that is under investigation, and we all want facts right away, but the NTSB does not rush these things. It's going to take some time to put together all the events. But, yes, we don't know why it took firefighters as long as it did to get to the people who were stuck on that yellow line train, breathing in smoky air, to get them out of there. Here's what John in Fairfax experienced. John, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. 
my experience. I wasn't there. But from what I've heard on the news, uh, there's a lot more that uh, the passengers didn't know. And uh, maybe the passengers weren't sure that the driver even knew what their situation was, and they had reason to believe that there was immediate danger, therefore they should evacuate, of asphyxiation. The uh, unfortunate decision that the passengers had to make, and apparently actually a life-and-death decision, uh, because someone did die, uh, was that they had smoke their their car was being infiltrated by acrid smoke, uh, and yet it might be worse outside, at least immediately outside, and they might be able to get to a place where there was fresh air, and they might have to face the third rail electrification. Uh, the other issue that I see as important is that uh, the firefighters need to have a protocol that allows them to immediately determine whether there's power on the third rail. That's an easy thing for them to do. I mean, even just a, a strip of aluminum that you could just drop down across the third rail, if it burns up, then you know there's power. Here's Martin McCarroll. The NTSB, part of the NTSB investigation, does take into account the response. Uh, right now, we don't have answers to a lot of the questions as to why the fire department didn't immediately go downstairs. But, yes, the chief, as you alluded to, uh, one fire chief did say they weren't sure if the third rail power had been cut because trains were still passing through the station. That's on the lower level at Lafon, not the top level where the yellow and green line had already been cut. Joining us by phone now is Chris Zimmerman. He is vice president for economic development at Smart Growth America, but he's also a former member of WMATA, the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority. Chris Zimmerman, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kojo. Chris, there's still a whole lot of information that needs to be put into the public record before we can know definitively what happened. But we do know the basics that Martin DeCaro has laid out. What was your reaction when you learned of this latest incident? Well, let me say first, uh, I'm a regular yellow line rider myself. And, uh, you know, like anyone who rides every day, these are things you think about. And uh, this is obviously a, a horrifying situation for the people who are caught in it. And, uh, you know, a terrible tragedy. And you know, all of us who ride can certainly identify with that. Um, you know, at the same time, I, I learned from these incidents over time uh, that it usually takes time before you actually know exactly what happened. I think there's been quite a bit of information already, and I think Martin did a good job of going over that. But some of the biggest questions we have, particularly the technical questions, probably won't be forthcoming for a while. It will take time for the experts to do the analysis to really give us a definitive answer. And um, it will be frustrating until then. But as a former exactly board member, you know the big picture here, Chris. To what extent does this stem maybe in part from some of the known ongoing challenges facing the system, aging infrastructure, tight budgets, and the like? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that there's two important things here to keep in mind. First, we need to keep a perspective, you know, on uh, on exactly, you know, the, the magnitude of this of this incident relative to, you know, all other risks. We tend to have a hyper-focus when there's an incident involving public transportation, whether it's, a, you know, a train or, a, or an airplane. Um, and we often then kind of, you know, get a distorted view of what relative risks are. Um, you know, the, if you look at the number of incidents that have affected passengers this way over the period of the last 20 or 30 years, they're really very few for something that runs at the volume it does, carrying, you know, 700,000 people a day every single day, um, you know, in the last 10 years, over 4,000 people were killed on the highways in this region alone. So, you know, not to minimize what is obviously a very serious incident, but we do need to keep it in perspective. And secondly, you know, I think the important thing, to the extent that anything we learn tells us that there's, you know, issues involving the maintenance of the system, which is the thing you obviously think about. Um, you know, do we have equipment out there that's been operated too long, that, you know, that needed to be replaced? That certainly has been the case in some things, uh, you know, in the past. Uh, and that's an ongoing concern. Uh, but, you know, we talk about that whenever there's an incident, but in between the problem is that uh, the region uh, has really not been willing to put the ongoing funding into operations and maintenance. It's a lot easier to get money to, say, do an extension like the Silver Line, you know, to build something new uh, in our system than it is to get the kind of funding necessary to adequately fund operations and maintenance. People want this system to work perfectly, to never, ever have an incident, to never, ever go wrong. But, you know, to do that takes a lot 
uh, takes a lot of investment, and that yeah, kind of investment continues to be a problem for our region. We invited Metro's General Manager Richard Sarles, along with the National Transportation Safety Board, several other current members of the board, all either declined or did not return our phone calls. At WAMU 88.5 News, we'll continue to report on this story and bring you those voices as they become available, but on the question of budgets, Martin. Well, I had a question for Mr. Zimmerman and Martin DeCaro here, Chris. Um, Hi, Martin. You know, you're right. The highways are more dangerous than, than the rails, and uh, maybe that's because we just expect people to die on the highway by the thousands. You know, to the point of the rails, however, you know, people see track work every week. It's been going on for years. It's going to be years more of it. And then they wonder why there could be uh, these smoke fire incidents. Is this something that, you know, does happen to a lot of rail systems? We're not the only one. You know, how preventable something like this? It could have been caused by water on the tracks. Well, it was a very rainy day yesterday, so maybe there's something there that's not preventable. What, what are your thoughts on that, on the preventable nature of these types of incidents? Well, you know, again, to emphasize that, you know, the people who are looking at this are going to have to have the opportunity to tell us exactly what happened and why and, and analyze it. And, uh, you know, this is speculation by any of us at this point. Um, it is important to understand that water is a reality in an underground environment. Um, you know, there is water in the system. And, um, you know, fighting back water is a reality of any kind of subterranean system. And so, you know, it's not that that's an unusual thing to have water present. Um, secondly, you know, arcing is something that occurs you know, fairly routinely, too, and, you know, doesn't always indicate a, a significant problem. So, the, you know, the question is going to be, what happened here exactly that caused this to be a problem? And, and we don't know that. And most of the time, it's minor. It's and been, it's been reported that it was nearly 40 minutes to an hour before rescue teams evacuated the train. What was the reason for this delay? Was this is a miscommunication first, you, Martin? Well, Kojo, I, I don't have a clear answer to that yet. Um, the fire chief who was quoted yesterday did say it was not as long as some people uh, believed it was while they were on the train. They might disagree with that. It's very hard sorting out fact from fiction at this point. But uh, there are real questions about response here. I mean, Chris is right. Arcing insulators are not uncommon. But response is something that's going to be looked at very carefully and closely because here. Because we talked with yes. Chris right after the red line tragedy in 2009, and I'm wondering, Chris, if the communication or lack thereof that was demonstrated yesterday results in part from something we may not have learned in 2009. You know, obviously you can wonder that. I can also wonder if if it doesn't result in part from, you know, what was done as a result of it. I mean, one of the things that often happens uh, when you have a bad incident, you have, you know, some terrible thing happen, uh, there's a response to it, and everything's done to make sure that whatever specifically went wrong that time doesn't happen again. And sometimes it turns out that that actually creates other problems. And, uh, you know, that, that is a little problem I think all institutions have, you know, lurching from response to one crisis to another. Um, again, you know, I don't think we can draw a lot of conclusion at this point. There's clearly two separate things here, the question of what caused the incident in the first place and the evaluation of the response. I, you know, until we even have the time laid out, we don't actually know what the facts are about how long it took, but that's, you know, the one that I, I think gives the, the greatest reason for concern. Martin. There certainly is a lot of effort done to coordinate response, and a lot of things I've heard people talk about are things I always heard before about the systems they had in place. So if it's true that something didn't work, I, I think that's a big question, because it's not that people haven't spent a lot of time trying to coordinate the different systems, the different agencies, the different first responders uh, with the metro system. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, clearly the, the train was unable to back up to the platform because there was no third rail power. What we don't know is when and why the third rail was cut. Was it because people were on the track bed, so therefore it became dangerous to keep the third rail on, or was the third rail cut earlier than that? Um, and, and, you know, there are it, – in, in life there are risks, right? We have to accept risks in almost everything we do, that not every uncomfortable situation can be avoided. And yesterday was a very difficult situation. Fire, I'm sorry, smoke-filling rail cars that – that were darkened by a lack of light. People were coughing. They were laying on the ground. And um, it's hard to hold people to that, you know, sign that's in every Metro rail car. Do not leave the train, yeah. right? And, you know, but unless you're in immediate danger. And yesterday probably qualified as immediate danger. When will all trains resume their normal schedules? That, um, well, as long as the NTSB is on the tracks, 
and investigating this, you're not going to see the yellow line. Well, I guess we await the result of the NTSB investigation. Martin DeCaro is transportation reporter for WMU. Thank you for joining us. All right, thank you, Kojo. Chris Zimmerman is a former member of WAMATA. He is vice president for economic development at Smart Growth America. Chris, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kojo. Going to take a short break. When we come back, Tech Tuesday, we explore the future of mobile apps. I'm Kojo Namdi. If you've been a contributing member of WAMU 88.5 for years, consider including the station in your estate plans. It could be an effective way of meeting your charitable giving needs, and it'll support WAMU 88.5 for years to come. For more information, contact your financial advisor or visit WAMU.org and click on support. Thanks. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from Commonwealth Orthopedics, who merged with Richmond-based OrthoVirginia. Commonwealth Orthopedics will now be known as OrthoVirginia. The doctors, staff, and 10 locations will not change. More information is at orthovirginia.com. And from Booz Allen Hamilton, marking 100 years of service, character, and vision. More about their legacy of innovation in consulting, analytics, technology, and engineering at boozallen.com. Good afternoon. The movie Boy had received three Golden Globes for Best Film Drama, Best Director, and Best Supporting Actress. On the next Fresh Air, we talk with Ethan Hawke and Patricia Arquette, who co-star in the film, which was shot over the course of 12 years. Join us. It's coming up today at 2 here on WAMU 88.5. In the forecast today, sunny, a high near 37 degrees. Tonight, increasing clouds, chance of snow after midnight. It's 1224. Mobile applications are exploding, and they're how we now play games, do our banking, share photos, track our health. And as mobile apps increasingly become indispensable tools in navigating daily life, some liken this moment to the early days of the Internet, before search engines and links. A number of major tech companies would like to be the first to find a way to connect your apps and make data and functionality more seamless. But as apps increasingly tap into our most personal information, who's collecting and sharing your data is also a worry for many. Joining us to discuss this is Ben Bederson. He's an associate provost and professor of computer science at the University of Maryland. Ben Bederson, always good to see you. Thanks, Kojo. Also in studio with us is Harold Smith. He is the CEO of Cydonia Systems. It's a mobile product development company based in Tyson's Corner. Harold is also a security consultant for the Defense Department. Harold Smith, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. And joining us from studios in San Francisco is Ian Schur. He is the, the executive director of CNET News. Ian, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Ben, we all use them regularly, but exactly what is a mobile app? You know, an app is a lot like a website, except instead of being a generic tool, like a website that can load content from anywhere and display anything, it's customized for that particular uh, need, and it gives much more capacity. You have uh, more ability to access the phone's hardware, graphics, phone, uh, accelerometer, and with that capacity means you have to be a little bit more careful about exactly uh, what it can do and what information it has from your phone. Harold, we are doing more and more through mobile apps, getting our news, sharing photos, calling a taxi. Give us a sense, how big is the industry and what kind of game changer have mobile apps been? You know, I, we were we were talking before uh, we jumped on the show. Mobile apps is still sort of at its infancy. Back in 1999, Google, you know, was they were cataloging a billion web pages and, you know, how many billions of web pages are there now? I think they're about... 2 million mobile apps out there on the market now between uh, Android and Google Play, I mean, uh, iOS and Google Play. But I think that's just scratching the surface of where they are. It's really an explosion. Um, 
Ian, many liken this stage of apps to the early days of the Internet. Take us back a moment. Remind us of what the ecosystem was like 20 years ago and how it relates to mobile apps today. Well, if you think back to before there was a Google, which a lot of us might struggle to remember that, um, it was actually rather hard to find some stuff on the Internet. Uh, A lot of the search engines that were out there um, weren't as good as Google. Obviously, we now all use Google because it was better than what was out there back then. But um, to find things, it was it was actually pretty hard. Uh, you know, Yahoo started not as a search engine, uh, but actually as a list of the websites that Jerry Yang and the co-founders really liked. And then it kind of took off from there because no one had kind of an easy way to collect them. And um, app stores, specifically in apps and in phones, are very similar to this problem. Uh, you know, one of the biggest problems that's existed for Apple and Google is is helping people find apps and then helping people find information within apps and getting information out of apps. And uh, it's it's actually become a it kind of one of this larger problems that uh, a lot of tech companies are starting to focus their time on because uh, what happened when Google showed up was that the Internet became... It started growing rapidly, partially because it was so much easier to find information. And it's very logical to believe that if the same thing were applied to apps, that we would see yet another explosion of usage and interest. Ben, right now, apps are self-contained programs, which for the most part are not linked with other programs. What are the benefits? What are the drawbacks of that? Really good question. You know, there's actually been a long history of kind of... uh, uh, pendulum swing between how open information is and how private it is. You may remember going back in time to AOL. You know, I've, companies used to advertise on billboards. You know, AOL keyword, and that was a way to find information because AOL owned the way that people accessed information. One of the things that the web did, uh, and as Ian was just describing, how what Google Search did is it opened up access to information. And that was in distinction from the AOL, what we used to complain about the AOL model being a walled garden. <laughs> walled garden, in, you know, in quotes, is, you know, is evil. That is something, that's a way of thinking about information where one company controls access. And while we like apps because, as I said, they give you a little bit more power, a little bit more control, they really are problematic because they put more control in the holder, in the eye of the, the, the owner. And one great example is uh, YouTube videos. I mean, sorry, I mean, Facebook videos, mm-hmm. right? We kind of think of YouTube videos as more open because they have a URL and you can just access in your browser. You don't need an account. But now go to a Facebook video and try and share that with someone. And the only way to do it is really by sharing it within Facebook. And, of course, Facebook likes that. But I know as a user, I don't. Ian, big tech companies have a lot riding on figuring out what's next for mobile apps. Can you talk a little bit about this issue of deep linking and some of the larger issues around where apps are headed? Sure. So a lot of what's going on now is that companies like Facebook um, and Twitter and really a lot of the social-focused companies, because they want to get their claws into as many things as possible, they are starting to really work with this technology you call deep linking, where what they're doing is that they're trying to basically create URLs, if you will, within an app. So, for example, if I'm taking, uh, if I'm on Yelp and I'm inside the app and I, I see something that I like, I can actually send a link to a friend and it'll open it up within their Yelp app. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot easier to find specific par- points within an app. Um, this is especially helpful, you know, one of the things that is existing out there is that there are other email clients. So, for example, there's not just the mail or Gmail stuff that comes with your phone. You can get third-party other mail clients like one called Mailbox. And that app, if you click on a link that goes to Yelp.com, it'll just send you to the web page. But if you have Yelp installed on your phone, using this deep linking technology, it'll actually just open up the app for Yelp. And the reason they all want to do this is that the more that you're using their apps, they get more information. They're able to give you more features. As we mentioned at the beginning of the program, they have access to the sensors on your phone. So uh, Yelp, for example, has a technology where if you bring up the phone and you turn it on, you can actually uh, look through the screen and it shows you what's in front of you in the, in the street and it'll show you where all the different uh, businesses are that are nearby. And so it's that kind of technology that they want to encourage you to use because the more gee whiz and oh wow stuff they can do, the more likely you are to use their apps. So 
creating this deep linking really helps. There's another important part of this, which is advertising. So Twitter, for example, has and Facebook have made quite a bit of money by advertising apps within their streams. So if you're going through Facebook and you see, hey, I, I was playing Candy Crush the other day and now it's offering me 20% off more energy or lives or whatever you call it uh, to be able to play the game more, they can bring me right within the app. And that really helps to kind of solidify me as a customer and it really helps the, the industry kind of work together more. Uh, it doesn't help my wallet very much, of course. But that's, that's kind of the idea behind a lot of this deep linking. And uh, just as we saw with the Internet, if you get this, this linking right, you can really see a lot more information moving around. If, if we mentioned YouTube earlier, you know, YouTube videos don't just exist on YouTube. They don't just exist in, in, in links. You can bring YouTube videos into blog posts. You can bring YouTube videos into news articles. You can integrate them in so many different ways. And the Internet, the, the app world is trying to figure out a way to do that for them. It's very hard because uh, apps are, are so self-contained right now. But the future that companies like Facebook and Google and Twitter see is where they intercommunicate a lot more. And switching between apps isn't such a uh, onerous task as it is today. And I say onerous, double-clicking on your button for <laughs> and then clicking again isn't that onerous. But it's still it's, it's a little jarring. They want to make it much easier. And uh, they hope that this will do that. You can find some of the favorite apps of our panelists at our website, kojoshow.org. You can join the conversation by calling us at 800-433-8850. What's your favorite mobile app? Are there any you use on a daily basis, Ben Bederson? So can I just quick response to Ian, sure. which is that the idea of deep linking is surely useful and very practical if you have apps. However, you have to remember that they're still in many ways these are anti-consumer because they only they require you to install the app. So it's great that if I click on a link, I can get the Yelp app, but it's like having to install a new app or a new browser every time I click on a new link. The idea that the whole world has a different application for every single source of information is going to cause us a lot of grief. And um, so that's why there's a tension between apps which have some positive things, but the world really and consumers really want web-based content that is freely available with simple links without having to go and install custom apps every time you want well, to Well, does it. this make standardization an issue, Harold? I think it makes standardization sort of an issue, and I also think there are security implications to it of, you know, what are trusted apps that can be open these um, URLs, deep linking and all that. Um, but I guess, how do you standardize what can be shared, what is shared, what is opened? Uh, the URL scheme is pretty standardized, so sharing data in that aspect is, you know, uh, pretty well thought out, I believe. Glad you brought security into the conversation because that allows me to bring Adam Eli into the conversation. He's the chief security officer and co-founder of Blue Box Security. That's a mobile data security company. He joins us by phone from San Francisco. Adam, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. Adam, given that mobile apps are now how many people do everything from banking to sending photos, and there are concerns about the security of your information when using mobile apps. What are some of the issues? Uh, we're starting to see, we're right at that cusp where we're starting to see security issues in mobile, and this is the device and the applications. Everything from how the data is stored on the device, what data is stored on the device, vulnerabilities that hackers are exploiting in the applications themselves, all the way down to the security and the trustability of the device itself. So we're seeing attackers attacking uh, the network traffic of the mobile device, either over the cellular or over Wi-Fi networks. We're finding banking applications and retail applications that are storing credit card numbers, social security numbers, private information on the mobile device. And then that mobile device gets infected with malware, an attacker takes it over, or the person just simply sells it on eBay, and that information is all vulnerable uh, to loss and, and theft at that point. So we're right at that cusp where we're starting to see these problems coming out, and people are having to think about security in the mobile space. What uh, concerns do you have, security concerns about apps? Give us a call at 800-433-8850 or send email to kojo at wamu.org. You could shoot us a tweet at Kojo Show. Ian, we've all heard that we should pay more attention to those user agreements on the web where we usually just click I agree without reading them. What about apps? Are people less conscious of security when it's just an app that lets you put color filters on your photos or a game? Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. And and in fact, one of the hardest parts about security on mobile phones is that up until now, um, or up until recently, it hasn't been that much of a problem. Uh, most of the hackers have, have gone after the easy kind of pickings in the mobile world, which are uh, people who hack their phones already to try and get around the security rules to be able to install programs that Apple or Google don't want you to. And now they're starting to go after the larger groups of people, the people who have normal phones like your grandmother, and they want and the and they, you know, they aren't as knowledgeable possibly about how to use their smartphones intelligently. And so as was brought up, there's malware, there are these schemes that try and convince you to send money and they they lie and say that they've locked your phone and you can't get access to information. There are viruses out there. There's all sorts of stuff that's starting to happen. And, of course, the app world is very dangerous in this regard because we've now all been taught, oh, just download the app. There's an app for that. And what happens is that if you download and install the wrong app or from a company that is doing something bad or even an, a, a good app you know, that's from a reputable company but that has been somehow intercepted or hacked into by hackers, you're suddenly putting yourself at grave risk and you're possibly going to have all of your information leaking out of your phone. And if you think about it, uh, there's stuff like, uh, you know, Apple has Apple Pay on their phones, although they say it's in a special secure system, but it's still there. There's all sorts of other information we put on our phones. And so there's there's quite a danger that's arising out of this, it, both the the we're all used to downloading apps and we're not really in, we're not really smart about how we do it. I mean, most people still use really bad passwords in their daily lives and use the same password everywhere. And that's just the beginning of the problem. They don't even start thinking about what apps they're downloading and what websites they go to. And that's going to be a huge problem if they if Apple and Google and all these other companies aren't able to solve the security problems ahead of time. But, Ben, you note that, in fact, by default, that very kind of silo quality about apps makes them more secure? Well, they have the potential of being more secure, except that uh, because it's more controlled and the operating system does have the ability to control what the apps can do, except they want those apps to have the flexibility to take advantage of the information that's on the phone and the capabilities. And so there is this really core issue of how much privilege does an app get? So if it gets access to your camera, that's fine. It gets access to the web. But does the Amazon shopping app really need to access the whole web, or does it only need to be able to reach back to Amazon.com? And if you give the privilege, privilege to modify a system setting like audio volume, does it need to modify all system settings or just audio volume? Um, so this is a problem that a lot, the operating systems all have. I will give a quick shout-out to my colleague, uh, Professor Jeff Foster at the University of Maryland Cybersecurity Center, who's working on a research project on exactly this, which is to you know um, increase the granularity of how much permissions you give. But this is a case where there's sort of a trade-off between usability for end users. The vendors just want to make it so it's a single click. But if you really want it to be secure, you're going to have to have a lot more control. Harold, there are 2 million mobile apps out there, and you say it's still the Wild West. You point out that this is a nascent field. No one's doing a consumer reports or a good comprehensive review of mobile app security. What does that mean? It means, so you have really no way to validate and verify that maybe a mobile app is secure. You know, if, where is it sending information? You know, has it been exploited? Is it storing your passwords in plain text on the device, which many, many mobile apps are doing if they're accessing cloud services? So, you know, most developers don't understand the tools or the skill sets that are necessary to actually build mobile apps that sort of counteract what people would be doing to exploit them. They really rely on the device giving them security, encryption, and all that, which really isn't enough um, uh, touch ID is a perfect example where many apps are adding touch ID as a part of the login screen, but Apple doesn't give you derive a encryption key for that. It just says the user has validated that they're a valid user. So you can't do anything extra with that information besides say the user probably is who they are. So they really aren't giving you the tools necessary to build more secure apps that are just saying the device is secure itself, but you know, who knows what 
extra the uh, developers are uh, doing on top of that. Adam, Eli, we got an email from Cassandra who says or asks, do apps open cell phones and other devices to possible viruses? Adam, what recommendations do you have for security when it comes to mobile apps? Sure, absolutely they do. One of the things that we've seen is that the mobile operating system, so your, your iPhones, your Android devices, they're becoming more and more open. Apps are being able to interact with one another. Apps from same developers can share data. So what we're seeing is that attackers are, are finding flaws in individual applications. They're attacking those applications over the network or using other apps that you've installed that may have had a, a malicious bit kind of built into it. And then they try to then exploit the operating system, find vulnerabilities in that, and just continue to expand and beat all of the security controls. Same way that we saw this happen in, in PCs and desktops. So the, the best advice we can normally give is, one, be vigilant about the applications you're downloading. Some of the others have kind of mentioned that. Getting the applications from the approved app stores, from the, the Apple and Google app stores, verifying that the name of the company who has the application listed actually is the company you're trying to download the app from. So if you're trying to download an app from an airline and the name is not the airline's uh, name or it's misspelled, it's probably not right, and it slipped through the security review checks of the app stores. After that, it's managing the, the permissions. When you install the application and it comes up and says, hey, I want access to your location, or I want access to um, you know, audio or to any of the, the settings, if that doesn't seem right, just click no. And, and at the end of the day, you can use the application, and if something doesn't work, you can always go back and add that permission. And Taking small steps like that, you can help prevent yourself from getting this, uh, the mobile malware or getting applications that are designed specifically to exploit and circumvent the security that's built into other applications or that's built into the operating system itself. Got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue this Tech Tuesday conversation on mobile apps and their rise. You can still give us a call at 800-433-8850 or go to our website, kojoshow.org. Join the conversation there. See the favorite apps of our panelists. I'm Kojo Nandi. Coming up at one, Haiti at a crossroads five years after a devastating earthquake. The country finds itself in the midst of political crisis. Plus, the Internet is not the answer. A new book explores the Internet's darker effects on society. Today at one on the Kojo Namdi Show on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. And today on Here and Now, the Swedish music streaming service Spotify announced this week it now has more than 15 million paying subscribers and 60 million active monthly users. The number of paying users has increased about 50% since May of last year, even after Taylor Swift pulled her entire catalog off the service in November. We'll look at what's ahead for the streaming service with Jason Bellini of The Wall Street Journal today on Here and Now, starting at 3. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from Virginia Tech, committed to creating partnerships for a better future through research and intellectual capital. Learn more at vt.edu impact. And from General Dynamics Data Center Solutions, providing experience in transforming, securing, and migrating data center solutions. gdit.com slash data center. And from Washington National Cathedral Seeing Deeper, the main space comes alive without chairs for a week of sightseeing and special evening programs. Now through the 16th, information is at nationalcathedral.org. It's 1245. Welcome back. We're talking the rise of mobile apps on Tech Tuesday with Ben Peterson, Associate Provost and Professor of Computer Science at the University of Maryland. Ian Schur is the executive editor of CNET News. Harold Smith is the CEO of Cydonia Systems, a mobile product development company based in Tyson's Corner. And Adam Eli is the chief security officer and co-founder of Blue Box Security, a mobile data security company. A question of security comes from John in Alexandria, Virginia. John, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. 
Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. It's a very interesting show. Um, the other day I was in an application and I was doing whatever you do in apps, and all of a sudden a pop-up message came up and it said something to the effect that you may have accessed some malware, you know, quick click here and we'll fix it for you. Is that the equivalent of back in the old days when you open up an email and if you didn't know who it was from, you don't open the attachment because that's where the, you get infected? Is that the same thing? Adam? Yeah, absolutely. So mobile is new and it allows us to kind of work anywhere we want, do all these fun things kind of on the go. But some of the old rules still apply. So just like when you're on your desktop and you would get some kind of pop-up that said, hey, you've been infected, and that would actually lead you to getting malware, you know, follow the same kind of rules. If you don't know it, if it doesn't look right, don't click it, don't follow it. Uh, so apply the same kind of logic and rules and, and, and uh, then you'll be safe. Thank you very much for your call, Harold. Tensions are high in Europe after last week's attacks in France and in the U.K. yesterday. The British Prime Minister is pursuing banning encrypted messaging services unless intelligence services were given access. Do we also now have to worry about the government here accessing our personal data, even if it's encrypted? Uh, I believe so. I think uh, the statements he made were a little outrageous. I think people have the right to privacy. I think that's a fundamental right ability to share information between uh, trusted parties. Um, as far as the government interception, I mean, I think we all have seen stuff that's come out through uh, Snowden leaks and all that to know that the government has a pretty good ability to intercept information if they want. It is, I guess the impetus is on the end user to make sure that, you know, they're either using, if they don't want uh, the government to intercept their calls or communications to be using end-to-end encryption, end-to-end phone calls, PGP email. But, you know, those are pretty high standards to follow if, you know, you want to protect yourself against that. I think that's a little uh, out of touch for the layperson. But, Adam, we're just learning today that Uber is agreeing to share ridership data with the city of Boston. What are the possibly impl- possible implications of that? that? Does it mean that a company is agreeing to share encrypted data? Yeah, I mean, it definitely means that your personal data is going to be shared. Now, they may anonymize it to some level, uh, and hopefully they will, so that it's just uh, statistical data. There was this amount of rides per day going between these destinations, and that's pretty high-level data that if you take a taxi uh, in New York City or Boston or any other city, all of that information goes back to, uh, to, the, to the city and the regulators as well. So as long as they follow the same kind of paths, it's really no different. Now, if they start to give your credit card number and that sort of information, which I would be, um, I'm very skeptical that they would go that far, uh, then that would be a problem. But right now, it looks like the data is really going to be kind of the same as if you took a a, a city-regulated taxi. And we can look back all the way to the late 90s when the NSA had their Echelon project, which was one of the first public projects uh, by the the government to kind of snoop and and collect data that uh, citizens were kind of getting caught into. So this concept of the the government trying to gain more and more information, circumventing encryption, is nothing new. They're just trying to legitimize it. It's in the public now, and we have to find ways to say, look, you know, enough is enough in certain areas and and balance uh, our rights as, as citizens and as individuals to have private data with the rights of the government to protect us. Okay, on to favorite apps. We Well, before we get there, we got an email from Josh who says, apps seem like a step backwards. In the heyday of the personal computer, one browser took you to a million websites. Now you need to have a million apps on your phone. Want to order a pizza? Put the Domino's app on your phone. Want to know the weather? Put a weather app on your phone. I don't know how we ended up with this new model with so many apps rather than just putting one browser app on phones and using that one app as the getaway. I don't know, Ben, how do we end up like this? But it does seem that the Apple platform has dominated the world of mobile apps, but Android is rising fast. Can you give us a sense of the ecosystem out there? And is Josh right? Uh, Josh is is partly right, but the reality is that there is a tension between apps and websites, and there's a pendulum swing that goes back and forth. And so there will never be all apps. There will never be all websites. There are values to both. And when the inconvenience of installing too many apps becomes too great, then consumers will resist, and uh, people developers will develop more websites. And in fact, the larger uh, providers of content, 
provide both a website and an app so that the user can get their choice. The other thing is that the web technology gets better and better. So I started by saying that apps enable richer kinds of interaction. And there was an example earlier today of being able to see through your phone with a kind of augmented reality. That's the kind of thing that today you can only do in an app. But I'll hazard a guess that within a year, you'll be able to do that on your web browser. So um, sometimes the leading technology starts in the app, and then if it becomes something that's important, then it will be made into a general availability in your web browser, and so the need for an app decreases. Harold, you develop mobile apps. Can you talk a little bit about how these programs are developed and the platforms they're developed for? Yeah, I mean, probably the hardest part is figuring out what you're going to develop. Um, you know, and it depends where you're going to go. Not everybody needs an app is what I tell a lot of uh, people I talk to, you know, maybe a, um, a, a local grocery store. You know, they don't need to develop an app. You know, a website that is responsive is, is more than enough to handle their users. But maybe if you're developing a mobile game, it's something that you really need to, as of right now, develop natively for, which there are technologies to build apps that are sort of hybrid, where they are they run natively but still use uh, HTML and pull down content from websites. Uh, there are purely HTML apps which run off uh, websites, and there are pure native apps which are built on the iOS or on Android and run natively on those devices. Some people want to share their favorite apps. You can find some recommendations at our website, kojoshow.org. But here's Monica in Colmar, Maryland. Monica, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi. Good afternoon, everyone. I play um, this game uh, called Ingress when you're talking about augmented reality. It's a really fun game where you actually have to walk around the city and part of it, part of the really cool things about it is that you get to meet people too. And so it's funny how a little game app takes so much, um, it takes a lot of your time, your leisure, but you also get to meet people face to face. So that's pretty cool to me. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Ben, what are some of your favorite apps? Uh, I think my favorite game is Monument Valley of this past year. Monument Valley is kind of incredible to me because it reflects on the art of Escher, which is, as, as a lifelong geek, I've always appreciated where it's kind of these 3D worlds that are impossible and these perspectives that don't make any sense. And it was hard enough to wrap my mind around growing up looking at this art when it was flat on a, you know, on a printed page or painting. And now it's a real 3D world that you can interact with, and my mind is reblown again. And I've been really enjoying getting to share it with my uh, 10-year-old daughter. Uh, and it's uh, well worth uh, the, the sort of beautiful, crazy interaction. Any other favorites? Um, uh, you know, there's a, uh, a wide range of things. I guess maybe one of the ones that I find to be sort of compelling from a, a sort of looking forward to what's useful is WordLens. This actually came out a few years ago. It got a bit of new visibility this past year when it was they were bought by Google. And it is another augmented reality app which supports travel and communication in the following way. You take your phone, you run WordLens, you hold it up, and it looks like a, you see a camera. You see the camera view, so you're just looking at whatever the camera is looking at. But if you point it at any printed words, it recognizes those printed words. It removes them and replaces them with the translated version of those words in one of six languages. And so if you're traveling and you want to see a street sign, you literally just hold up your phone, and the world looks like the world looks, except everything that is in Spanish, which I don't know, is now in English. It's really quite remarkable. Here's Ben in Winchester, Winchester, Virginia's favorite. Ben, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, well, thank you. Um, I think that when you asked the question at the beginning, how has have apps changed the world, is that if you don't have a strong support for developers and the people who actually make the apps, that operating system is doomed to failure. Um, the best example I can think of right now is the Palm Pre, that when that came out, it just came out, and there was no notice of developers, so there were no apps. And so if you're looking at an Android phone or an iPhone or you're looking at the Palm, Palm has been around longer, but nobody does any apps for it. And so I think that keeping that environment for these developers is important, but at the same time, I kind of feel like maybe Google and Apple aren't cracking down as hard as they should about these permissions and security things out of fear of driving more developers to their competition. Okay. Plus, you have a favorite app, don't you? Oh, yeah, gasbuddy.com. Always <laughs> want you to guess. 
cheap gas. I know, Ben, you like the, the ones where you can pay for parking with your phone. Yeah, right. Well, I this is a really practical thing, which is uh, mobile now and park mobile. Uh, have you use your yep. phone to pay in Montgomery <laughs> County and Washington, D.C. Because I could than... never find quarters when exactly. I get to those parking lots. How about some of your favorites, Harold? There are two things that really stick out to me. There's one that's called Now Secure, which actually will look at your phone and grade to see if your phone, your operating system is out of date. It'll actually look and see uh, for iOS which websites um, apps are visiting, you know, their URLs, so you can see how much data is going over HTTP, how much is going over HTTPS, you know, see if uh, data is going securely in and out of your phone, and actually which countries they're going to. So you can see, is my data going to Europe or Canada, United States? And also, I like, it's not just a mobile app, but the black phone um, is pretty interesting to me. It's part of the silent circle, texting and voice, where the story of the black phone is, you can actually say, I don't want Facebook to have access to my pictures. I don't want Twitter to have access to my contacts and all that. So it gives you a granular approach to your privacy, which data you can share and not share with apps. Ian, it seems that at one time developing an app meant uh, hitting it big, but I understand it's getting harder to stand out. How do apps make money? Uh, well, they, there are a number of ways. Uh, one of the ways is through advertising. So for example, uh, Angry Birds, which we all remember, uh, have, it started yes. on the iPhone, right? And it was 99 cents, and you got to download it. On Android, it was free. And what the, the way they made money was that they had um, banner ads. They just put an ad at the top or the bottom, and uh, you know they made money basically off your eyeballs. Uh, but one of the most popular ways that companies are making money now off of the App Store is through what's called in-app purchases or basically convincing you to buy more things after you've downloaded the app. Uh, if you look at the app stores uh, for Android or uh, Apple, you'll see the top grossing button. Some people never really figure out what that means. That means that that app, even if it's free, has convinced so many people. It's the top at getting people to pay extra money after they've downloaded the app. And, um, and it's an insane amount of money. We're talking billions of dollars and uh, but it's still very hard to make it out there. So what happens is, back when I was when the app stores were small, it was very easy for you to find interesting apps, and there were websites that would talk about them. We're now just about out of time. I'm afraid you're not going to be able to finish that thought, Ian. Sure, thank you for joining us, Ben Bedison, Harold Smith, and Adam Eli, all talking about the rise of mobile apps. Thank you all for joining us, and thank you all for listening. I'm Kojonan. Coming up tomorrow on the Kojonan, the show lowering the voting age to 16. Teens can't drink, but the town of Hyattsville became the second local jurisdiction to give them access to the ballot box. Then at one, art of the dinner party, whether formal or casual, a 21st century take on breaking bread with friends. The Kojonan, the show noon till 2 tomorrow on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. Today's programs are made possible in part by the Dugan family in celebration of Francis Dugan's birthday, 99 and still going strong. Support for WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org and thanks.